Hey, architecture firm owners and emerging leaders, get ready for unparalleled insight into the development of a world-class architecture firm and a worldwide organization driving the digital transformation of the design and construction industry with Build Smart, the podcast that's changing how our profession operates. We share the incredible stories behind innovation in the building industry with my friend and co-host, Patrick McLaney, FAIA, former CEO of the international architecture firm, HOK. You know, Yamasaki's office or firm lasted during his lifetime. And when he passed away, I think that was the end of the Yamasaki office. Helmut did not want that. He wanted a firm that would live out and grow beyond the founders. In season one, discover the untold stories behind HOK's meteoric rise, from 150 employees in St. Louis to a powerhouse with over 1,900 staff members and 27 offices worldwide. You know, they weren't as polite as the Kojima people. That was just boom. And anytime you have a creditor, whether it's Kojima or the bank, that wants their money, unless you can raise money someplace else, you are out of business. Bankrupt. Bankrupt. And hold on tight for season two, where Patrick takes us on a new adventure as chairman of Building Smart International, shaping the future of digital transformation in the design, construction, and operation of built assets. Ian Howell, Ken Harold, and I, Ken was my technical representative from HOK. The three of us took a tour of Europe of five cities in five days. Very busy time. Simply follow the link in the show notes to subscribe to Build Smart Now and uncover lessons that will transform you and your architecture firm. Way back in the mid-90s, I was a student at Roger Williams University School of Architecture. And like many architecture students, I spent hours in the library, reading books and magazines, looking for inspiration for my next studio project. I was never really a big fan of the postmodern architecture, which was at the time at its peak with architects like Michael Graves and Denise Brown and Robert Venturi. I love them as architects and I love what they do. Um, I'm, I'm impressed and inspired by them, but I was never really pulled to them. And the deconstructive movement with firms like Morphosis leading the way, or the work that Frank Gehry was doing at the time, I loved it all. I love architecture and I love all of the different types of architecture, but, but what I really love is architecture that is modern and pushes the limits of design, but also references the traditions, the roots of architecture and its organization and materials. So in the library, when I was looking for inspiration, I always gravitated toward the work of KPF architects, Cone, Peterson, Fox. And as a lifelong entrepreneur and a student studying to become an architect, Gene Cohn became my hero. So when Gene was scheduled to speak at Roger Williams at our monthly lecture series, I was so excited. And he absolutely, certainly did not disappoint. Gene spoke about the history of the firm, KPF, and how it started during a major recession, how it thrived through a devoted focus on relationships and how knowing the right people at the right times led to their best work. He spoke about the importance of business and how a thriving firm can result in a productive, dedicated culture. How building a strong business allowed them to select the best projects with the best clients. 
Gene's story and his words had a major impact on my career and most certainly influenced my desire to share what I know through the development of this platform and this podcast, Entree Architect. Gene had a direct influence on who I've become as an architect. So I can think of no one better to invite to this show and celebrate this episode, the 300th episode of Entree Architect podcast. So here it is, episode 300 with Gene Cohn of KPF Architects. My name is Mark Arlepage, and you are listening to Entree Architect Podcast, where each week I speak with inspiring, passionate people who share their knowledge and expertise, all to help you build a better business as a small firm entrepreneur architect. This is episode 300. This week, I'm speaking with Gene Cohn, founder and chairman of KPF Architects. This episode of Entree Architect Podcast is supported by our platform sponsors, RCAT, the online resource delivering quality building material information, CAD details, BIM, specifications, and so much more at RCAT.com. FreshBooks, the cloud-based accounting software that makes running your small firm easy, fast, and secure. Spend less time on accounting and more time doing the work you love. And Gusto. Easy online payroll, benefits, and HR built for modern small businesses like ours. Eugene Cohn, welcome to Entree Architect Podcast. Well, Mark, it's a pleasure to be here. I haven't seen you in many years, but I do have those fond memories of, of Rhode Island and Roger Williams. So. Yes, it was a, it was a, a brief meeting, but but uh, very inspirational one. You had. Uh, spoken at my the university where I went to architecture school in the early 90s. You were giving talks uh, throughout the country and you stopped off there in Roger Williams in Bristol, Rhode Island. Uh, at the time, it was Roger Williams College. Today, it's Roger Williams University. So probably around 92 or so. Um, and you shared the story of KPF and your partners and, and how uh, the focus of business, the business of the firm was so important and and the 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 strengths of your partners and the complementary strengths of that and, and um, how important the people of architecture is. Those were some of the things that, that inspired me and your words inspired me tremendously at that point. We, not only in your talk, but a brief conversation afterwards. Um, and your words literally inspired Entree Architect, the platform, the Entree Architect platform that I created in 2012 uh, because your inspiration for me to focus on business, I became a successful small firm architect with my wife, who is also an architect. Um, and I started a, uh, a blog about business and architecture. And that blog turned into a, a platform. And, um, and now it's got tens of thousands of people who listen and read what we do. And, and we're influencing architects throughout the world. And I think that you had a very large impact on me as a young architect. And so I find it uh, very fitting and very appropriate to have you on the show today. Uh, I, I don't know if you know, but this is the 300th episode of Entree Architect. And so uh, I'm very honored to have you as my 300th uh, episode. So thank you very much for I'm glad to, glad to be part of it. So Gene, before we get into the story of KPF and, and some advice to small firms, what inspired you to become an architect and what's the story from that point to where you are today? And then we'll sort of go on from there. 
Okay, well, it's a fairly long story. <laughs> That's okay. We have time. Um, so, I would say when I was young, I had no dreams of being an architect. I, I know my partner, Bill Pedersen, said from the time he was quite small, he always thought about becoming an architect. I, my father was uh, in medicine and research, and his family were all doctors. In fact, the people who took care of me were my uncles. And uh, uh, I, I remember walking into the operating room with one uncle, but he just started operating on me, and they always treated me. So I was surrounded by doctors, and, uh, and my dad was uh, constantly saying, you need to be a doctor. Um, and I thought about it seriously, because obviously the idea of doing good for people and helping people was, you know, as a doctor, was kind of very appealing. But I wasn't totally convinced. As, as a young man, I really loved sports. I mean, I was a good student, did well at school, but sports were something I really loved. And I even dreamed if I couldn't play professional ball, which I really wasn't good enough for, I could maybe announce the games and broadcast. And I used to, when my kids played ball, I announced their game and made it more exciting for them. And they got better hits with me announcing than they did <laughs> when I wasn't. Um, so, uh, but still, architecture was not part of that. Uh, now, I had, good, I had certain creative skills. I, I painted from the age of five. Uh, my mother was a fabulous painter. I actually had a show at the Guggenheim when she was 100. So I would paint next to her on Sunday and weekends and you know, also attend the Philadelphia Art Museum to paint and so forth. So I thought, well, I'm, you know, art is something I really enjoy. And I also played the piano. And so I was doing creative things. And my mother was a, a fashion designer um, and had not picked that up until the depression hit and caused my dad to lose his laboratory and the research because nobody paid their bills and stock market crashes, one knows. But he, uh, so he was really not effective in supporting the family at that time. And my mother decided to go back and do dresses and made them herself initially, knitted them and put sell. And then finally my uncle, who was a manufacturer in New York of dresses, started manufacturing what she was designing. And they started to sell because she was a very good designer. I got to know Carl Lagerfeld and mm -hmm. all the great Molly Parnas and all the big names in fashion because she would work with them, uh, know them as a friend, but um, did her own line um, and had her own store in Philadelphia. So um, her creativity did, rubbed off on me. I loved her uh, ability to design and appear. And women would love her dresses. And she wouldn't sell them if she didn't think it looked good on them despite if they wanted to buy them. And I learned a lot about that kind of uh, morality, so to speak. She really would not sell something she believed would not look good on a woman, despite women's desire to pay whatever to have the dress. So I learned something right there about business and, and, and yeah. honor and how to treat clients. So, um, but still architecture was not in my vocabulary. So as it, I did very well at school and um, went to a very hard school called Central High in Philadelphia that gives BA degree. It was a college during the World War II and, became, and then became a major school that you had to take entrance exams to get in and they had professors teaching. It was run like a university. And, but again, I wasn't studying any architecture. It was math, science, and, and I was thinking, well, maybe I could become a doctor, maybe a lawyer. I wasn't sure, maybe a sportscaster. So, um, but my mother's influence started to wear on me. I mean, I loved her art. I loved her creativity. I, to this day, can pick a dress off a rack and know exactly whether it'll fit or not. I mean, I watched her design and saw her fit people. Yeah. And I understand. So uh, I was a big help to her with young women coming to have me pick the dress and zip them up. <laughs> in the 
It's very interesting. But uh, secret weapon. Secret weapon. <laughs> so uh, again, uh, I'm still not discussing architecture. However, I admired buildings. I, we would drive around Philadelphia where I was born, and um, I admired certain buildings. And you know, I heard about Lou Kahn and I saw some of his work. And uh, but still, I, I uh, wasn't sure. Okay. So my mother said, you know, Jean, you really ought to study architecture, even if you want to be something else. And so she took me down to meet the dean at Penn at that time. His name was Dean Coyle, who retired shortly after I went to Penn. Um, and he said, yeah, the education is so strong over five years in this case that you'll be able to do anything you want you know, by going to grad school because you have had a great training, how to think, how to organize, how to create. So convinced me to go to Penn. I got a scholarship. I went to Penn and um, study architecture. Do you so, do you know do you know why your mom picked architecture? Did she just say you know he's crazy? No, she, like, me being, she knew I wasn't really a hundred percent interested in being a doctor. Right. And my dad wanted that much. My mother saw my skills because I drew mm -hmm. well and painted and uh, and I liked buildings, you know. But I didn't, I say, put architecture in, in yeah. those words. So she felt that give me a chance to express myself, why not try architecture at school? So that's how I happened to get to go to Penn with her, and she's pretty good at convincing people <laughs> of what I should do. So uh, I said, well, it's worth taking a good education. Penn's a great school, and, and uh, I would have fun. So I did that and then did very well in architectural school. I uh, ranked in the top 10 at graduation, and. Uh, and I studied with Paul Rudolph and other famous architects. Gettys was there, Venturi, uh, you know, on and on. Uh, Jurgala. I mean, it was a, a who's who at Penn and visiting crits, visiting lectures were terrific. So I, I liked it. I really enjoyed architecture. Louis Mumford was one of the great teachers and it's tough. I got into his class and I was hypnotized by his presentations. And, and so, you know, I learned it and I did well. So I, but it's still, believe it or not, uh, I wasn't ready to commit 100%. Um, I wasn't being stubborn, I just wasn't sure. Yeah. So uh, at that time, the Korean War was on, and um, I, I, saw, I went to Officers Candidate School for the Navy in Rhode Island, uh, in Newport, not too far from where we later yeah. met. Yep. And, um, and then um, went off to serve with the Navy and for three years. And um, although I trained for, for Korea, believe it or not, uh, with, with the Marines for invasions, uh, I ended up in North Africa and the North Atlantic. Um, and um, it was there that I got convinced to be an architect. The captain of my ship knew that I studied architecture because he knew about each naval, each officer on the ship and their background. And uh, it turned out that we were on a French base in Port Leone, and the French Navy had an officer's club that needed a lot of work. And the Secretary of the Navy, Chief of Naval Operations, two most senior and powerful naval officers, were coming to Morocco to check all the ships and planes based there. Because uh, the reason we're there is that the submarines, Russian subs are being trailed by naval units and Air Force units. And it was also the communication center for the Navy in both the Atlantic and the Mediterranean. So important bases. But we didn't own them. They were by the, owned by the French. So uh, they were coming. So the captain said, look, we can't have a party at that club. It's really not very nice. I'm going to give you two or three weeks off, all the people you need and all the money you need. I want you to redesign the interior and get it redone 
and you have that two, three weeks max. So it was not a vacation, I can tell you. But one of the most enjoyable three months, three weeks that I can remember because I designed, redesigned it, did all the drawings, did the paintings for the walls, and then had to go into these towns in Morocco and find materials that we could then use to rebuild. And then I had all these naval guys helping with getting the material and building. And we redid the whole club, new bar and all that. And it was a big hit, big home run. And that really did it. So my captain said, Fabulous job, patted me on the back, and its chief of naval operations, secretary of navy, were so happy. I said, "Hey, fantastic! I can do something, make people really happy, yeah. recognize it, and I could make a great career of this." It's just a boom. Well, the light bulb went off, and I said, "Right, hey, yeah, this is neat. It's fun." Now, that was more fun than it tends to be normally because there were no headaches. Everything went well. Um, so I said, well, I'll go back to graduate school. So after three years in the Navy, uh, I, I became a lieutenant commander eventually. Actually, I stayed in eight years with reserves. Um, I went back to Penn. I got a fellowship, and I studied with Lucon. Cabousier came, Gropius. I mean, it was a who's who. Franklin Wright came to Philly. Everybody was coming to Philadelphia because Penn had the great school and the, and the great professors. So uh, that was a year of just excitement. And I would say, while well, Rudolph started it no question he got me really excited about architecture and he would take us on tours meet people like philip johnson go see the his glass house khan when he would talk for four hours about his art his love for architecture you couldn't help you just couldn't help wanting to be an architect so that pushed me with enthusiasm over the top so it started with my mother's creativity and my recognition of that in art it then was the Navy, which through that particular experience got me excited about architecture, but also learned, learned about leadership. I mean, I could make decisions like that. Shelley was the same. He, he did serve in Korea in the Army. So we both had the ability to, to lead, make decisions quickly, and look at all both sides. So those combinations in Penn grad school and Luke Kahn in particular, and Corbusier too, made me decided to be an architect to create something so i couldn't wait to start drawing so that's how i got into architecture but it wasn't something that as a kid i said i want to be an architect uh, you know i had to build up to it yeah yeah that's very interesting the the influence from your mom through the navy uh and back into architecture school and the influence from some pretty significant architects yeah. um really sort of launched you into the profession it did with excitement. Yeah, with enthusiasm. Yeah, and 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 you were a designer right off the right. You, you... Yeah, design was the thing I did, and I loved loved to draw and design. And most of my career before, well, before KPF, was all design. Yeah. Um, and it was only when we decided to create a new firm that I had to think more about the leadership side. Although right. I'd been president of John Carl Warnke and had to lead that firm, but um, KPF became the bigger challenge of how you build a firm from zero. Yeah. yeah. So when you did that and, and you decided, okay, we're going to start, you were, you did work with other firms and you, you learned the business, you mm -hmm. learned how to be an architect. Um, when it was time to start your own firm, you right away chose to have partners. Yeah. Um, and that was a requirement. And as a designer, why did you not choose? Cause you're going to start the firm, right? You were the one that decided, okay, I want to start this firm, but you chose Bill as one of your partners who is, 
also a designer, right? And you decided that he would be the lead on design and you would be the lead on the business side. Why, why did you make that choice? That's a good question. So let me just back up a little bit for that. Yeah, yes, absolutely. So in my um, previous experience with people like Vincent Klein, he was a great designer himself. He was a great salesman. He was very, he was a good leader. He, uh, he would make sure if we were working overtime, he'd stop by with beer. He'd play the guitar for us. He'd take us on tours in a bus to see his buildings, our buildings that we worked on. He did a lot of things to, to help the, the team. And every Monday we all met, the senior people met, and every Friday night we had a beer party. So he constantly built team and built the, the feeling you're part of a great group, which I liked. I, I thought that was terrific. Mm-hmm. Uh, I worked for several firms, maybe not quite as good in terms of managing people, but gave me opportunities to design. Well, Beckett was head of design for their New York office. Um, and then um, finally, we, I worked for John, with John Carl Warnicke. I became his partner and eventually the president of the firm and led design as well as management. I hired Bill Pedersen mm-hmm. from Warnicke right. and pursued him. I'd heard about this young young architect working for I.M. Pei who was extremely talented and very nice as a person. And I met Bill and I was instantly taken by him. And I, it took a year before he came to join Warnicke because he was finishing the National Gallery and didn't want to leave before it was finished. And um, so he came once we could hire him, once he was available. Shelley was my classmate at Penn, and uh, I had great respect for Shelley. He was as conservative as could be, I, I mean politically, but business-wise, yep. market, and um, the most efficient person I'd ever met. I mean, he'd finish all his work by five o'clock, had a clean desk, <laughs> and would go home. I'd be there all night cleaning, working, and then the right. desk was a disaster. You know? And Bill was too, but um, so Shelley, you know, was a great manager and Bill really talented. So to get to your question, when we started the firm, which was after a really big crash financially in 73, which caused all these firms to have no work. Our firm at Warnicke was busy with a lot of pride and all stopped. Our only projects got ahead were those in construction. And that is the least from financially profitable time for an architect because he spent more of the fee up front mm. and now the construction would be lucky to come out even but usually they'll come out with a loss so he uh, we uh, had nothing but construction projects to finish up and it became apparent that this was going to be a long painful recession which it was 60 percent of architects in new york were unemployed unemployed and a lot of people left their profession then because there was no work. So it's, we decided, I decided to, to convince Shelley and Bill we should start a firm in 76. I think they thought I was crazy. Yeah. Other thought I was for sure crazy. What are you, you're giving up your job as president of John Warnicke to start a firm in this decline? What, what was the motivation? I mean, you had a job, you weren't going to lose that job. Well, yeah, I mean, it was, uh, uh, Jack, let's put it this way. Uh, Jack Warnicke, uh, I offered the same idea Mm-hmm. Bill, Shelley, all the key people that I started a firm with, eventually joined a firm, were the people I said, Jack, we have working for us, who I hired most of them uh, in New York. We can build a great team for you. Well, we went 50, 49% of the firm, you keep 51. He, so he said, no, I'll offer you 25, and I don't want anybody else. He said, Jack, we have four offices. Yeah. I've been running around the country every week. I said, this is not going to work for me, and it's not going to work long term because it's not healthy for my family. And 
I can't keep moving kids to other cities every time we want to start a new job. He'd say, Jack, tell me, Jack would say, Gene, tell me you're going to move to Kimbuktu and start your, you live there to do the project. Said, Jack, I can't do that. I've got my children in school in New York and they're going to stay there. So um, when I started the firm, I, we needed to change that kind of concept. You needed more partners. So put together a whole team of people that I ultimately would hire if we had the projects. So we could really serve our clients well with top talent available in different cities. So I offered it to Jack. Jack turned it down. He didn't want to share that. And, and he made a big mistake. I mean, had he done that, yeah, he would yeah. have ended his career strong and healthy and financially sound and, and great work because we were all doing terrific work. Anyway, we did, fortunately for us, and um, we started the firm. The reason I picked first Shelley, yeah, I, yeah. I think picking partners is critical. The reason I... I wanted partners is I think architecture is not a one person job. And I mean, not the scale we are working at. Right. You know, any architects and a team is better. More brains are better than just one in terms of both the creativity, but the management, the leadership, getting the work, following it up, all, all the tasks that one has to do as a professional. So I, I thought Shelley would be terrific. It's interesting. None of my family thought that was a good idea. None of my friends would say, you don't need Shelley. You can hire any project manager. I said, you don't know the point. Shelley is a very talented, very organized, very honest, extremely honest. And when he doesn't agree with you, you let you know. And he's not a yes man. He said, the worst thing you can hire as a leader is hire yes men. Because you want people who will not agree with you who speak up and prevent you from making a stupid mistake. And I said, when you take risk, you can make big mistakes. So you need to be sure that they make sense in some way. And so by talking with Shelley, I had the benefit of his usually being opposed before, but we would come to an agreement that really worked for the firm. And that's what I wanted. I mean, I didn't want a yes man. So right, pick right. Shelley and Shelley was very organized and, and a good manager and, and well liked by clients, respected. And um, so uh, Bill, um, Bill, I, I love being a designer. My goal was to do great design. In fact, with Kling, I won two national AI awards for the firm. Kling got the credit, but nevertheless, I designed. And um, I was doing very well. I could, uh, I wanted to continue. But after I met Bill, and I, I saw the potential that he was going to be a really great designer, great architect, and um, I admired him. And as a leader, I put the firm first, not me, but the firm, yeah, yeah. Said, and not my ego. I said, we'll do the best work with Bill as the lead partner in design. Now I'll work with him, and we did. We worked very closely together. And he always wanted my opinion, but Bill, brilliant designer, so sensitive that he can draw beautifully. And he would sit with clients and just start sketching and they melt. I mean, he just had that, had a handsome boyish look, um, smart, articulate uh, and emotional. And he got very nervous in presentations. He used to, I used to have to substitute for him because he got so worked up. But as he matured, that became something of the past and he he just did great work so i say with those two i have a great partnership i have somebody who can manage with bill he's going to do great work i'm going to contribute but he's going to lead yeah, and yeah. three i'll be able to go get work because i was the only one who had any of those skills to do a new business shelly didn't want to you know, he would help but he didn't want to have to travel around doing that bill was nervous he really got upset too nervous with presentations back in the early days. So it had to be me. 
So, but it, which was fine because I, I liked doing it. Yeah, so it yeah. worked out. So what happened? We had a man for every position, so to speak. Right. And uh, so I could be the leader. Shall I let me do that here? And, and, and I had better personality for that. And um, I like people. And that comes through. And I like working with them. So you know, it was easier for me to market and lead than for Shelley. And Bill didn't want any part of that. He just wanted to, to draw. So it was perfect. Yeah. Bill and I also were very good athletes. And we had we were the stars of our baseball team, which won five championships in a row. And I got accused of drafting young architects who were great ball players first. Architects. <laughs> I read that. I read that in the book. The book, actually, we didn't mention the book. The book is called The World by Design, The Story of a Global Architecture Firm. It's a great book. I'm almost done with it. I have about uh, maybe 50 pages more to go. Um, it's a great story about KPF, about you. Uh, and the and the story of the firm, it's yeah. uh, it's it's absolutely a, for anybody who's interested in growing a global architecture firm, uh, it is a mandatory book to read, in my opinion. We will be right back to our conversation after this quick break to say thank you to our platform sponsors here at Entree Architect, Arcat, FreshBooks, and Gusto. If you work with specifications in your firm, you probably have come across outdated manufacturer specs with confusing notes, products that no longer exist, or maybe even companies that no longer exist. Maybe you even pay for specifications. Stop, stop right there. There's a better way to find manufacturer specifications for your project documentation. RCAT.com. RCAT is the number one most used website for finding building product information and has a free library of over 1,400 up-to-date accurate specifications. RCAT's specs are written by FCSI, CCS, and AIA professionals based on manufacturer's data. Use RCAT's powerful search engine to find the right specifications for your project and quickly download them in multiple formats for free. That's right, RCAT is completely free. Everything at RCAT is free. You don't even have to register. Just go over to rcat.com, that's A-R-C-A-T.com, and start building better content today. Do you remember when you started your small firm? It wasn't easy. It took lots of late nights, early mornings, and the occasional all-nighter. Well, bottom line, you've been insanely busy ever since, so why not make things a little bit easier? Well, our friends at FreshBooks have a solution. FreshBooks invoicing and accounting software is designed specifically for small business owners like us. It's simple, intuitive, and keeps you way more organized than a dusty shoebox filled with crumpled receipts. Create and send professional-looking invoices in 30 seconds, and then get them paid two times faster with automated online payments. File expenses even quicker and keep them perfectly organized for tax time. And the best part? FreshBooks grows alongside your business, so you'll always have the tools you need when you need them, without ever having to learn the ins and outs of accounting. Join the 24 million people who've used FreshBooks. Try it for free for 30 days, no catch, no credit card. Visit entrearchitect.com FreshBooks. That's entrearchitect.com FreshBooks. And enter entrearchitect in the How Did You Hear About Us section. Payroll and benefits. What do you think about when I, when I say those words? Does it make your head hurt? Well, I know. Payroll and benefits are hard, especially when you're a small business. You don't have time to be an expert in things like taxes and regulations. You're an architect. 
and old school payroll providers just aren't built the way that we work today. Gusto is making payroll, benefits, and HR easy for small businesses like ours. Modern technology does all the heavy lifting, so it's easy for you to get it right. You no longer have to be a big company to get great technology, great benefits, and great service for your team. To help support our show, the Entree Architect Podcast, Gusto is offering our listeners an exclusive deal. Sign up today for three months and get it for free once you run your first payroll. Three months free. Just go to entrearchitect.com slash gusto and claim your free three months of payroll processing right now. entrearchitect.com slash gusto. RCAT, FreshBooks, and Gusto. Please visit our platform sponsors today and thank them for supporting you, the Entree Architect community. Speaking of a global firm, did you did you envision KPF to be this large global firm right from day one? You've you've picked these two uh, talented architects to be your partners with complementary strengths. Um, did you envision what you would build? Well, actually, yeah, we did, but it wasn't to be this big. You know, what we we talked about is what we wanted to accomplish personally and as a firm, and we all wanted to work on projects, not delegate them, but actually work on them which we did in the early days, obviously, as we got bigger, that <clears throat> other people started doing more of that. The um, second thing was we wanted to get the best work and do the best work. So in other words, we just didn't want to be busy with work. We wanted it to be really good and make a contribution. So one, we could work on the projects personally, and two, uh, that we could, um, we could put our, you know, invest our time to do these things right and make them special. But we realized we we're going to eventually have to hire more people once you get these projects. So we also wanted to create a firm. This is important. That will exist after we either retired or passed away or, or both, obviously. And you knew that right from day one? Day one. Yeah. We, that we was one of my questions. Down, we actually wrote down, Mark, those three things. We want to do great architecture to contribute to society and create value. We each wanted to work on buildings because we're architects. And three, we wanted to have a firm that would exist, designed to exist after we left, which what meant the following, that we needed to hire people as good or better than we are. If you don't do that, you can never take the firm on. So I can tell you that the younger partners in this firm today are as good or better than I am. Bill, Bill I would say is a question, but close. And, and, or Shelley, I mean, um, these are really talented, people with great skills and nice human beings. They're fine, they're team players. So we're about team. When we started, the other thing we did, we said we're not building a firm that plays up Gene Cohn, Bill Pedersen, or Shelley Fox. It plays up the firm right. in the firm. And to this day, we give credit to everybody who works in these jobs. And even if Bill did most of the design, he gives credit to the other designers. We try to build teamwork uh, it's all about team because architecture is a team sport. You can't do it by yourself. Maybe a house you could, a small house, but you can't do these buildings that we do by yourself. You yeah. need a great team of people, engineers, and all the other consultants. You have to recognize that you're part of a much bigger team that makes this happen. But what you are is the guy there, a gal who gets the initial idea and the spark and helps make it real. But to execute takes a lot of people. And so from the very start, we. We hired some of the earliest older pros who did working drawings. We wanted to do working drawings too, design and work. And we felt it was critical to understand the detailing and how you put it together 
and to control that. So the building was beautifully detailed. And um, even as a young firm, we got compliments from the major contractors who said, you guys do phenomenal drawings. Your buildings really work. The details are beautiful. Detail made the building great. I mean, I learned that from Mies van der Rohe. I just go down at his buildings and you look at details, the proportions and the detail and you say, fabulous. Norman Foster carried that on. So all the architects that I admired in their work could detail beautifully. So we wanted to make sure to have people who had a detail. And we've studied those very carefully. So you needed a team, you need a lot of talent, and you can't do it by yourself. Yeah, and that 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 the culture of the relationship, right, is it seems to be a very big theme throughout the book, throughout the history of KPF of yeah. of the people are why it's successful. Right from day one, you chose partners that were complementary to you. You, exactly. you you developed a culture within KPF that it wasn't about those three people; it was about the firm. Sure. Um, and you built this culture to to be successful and would leave would live way beyond the three of you. Which is the case. Yeah. So I passed away, unfortunately, about 14 years ago. Uh, Bill's wife passed away recently. He's been away from the firm for four years because of her illness. And, um, you know, I'm still been full time. I mean, there will be a time shortly that I may want to take some time off and do other things. So um, what's happening is we are going to, we are prepared. And over the time now, I've been passing the firm on to others. There's a young man who leads the firm by the name of Jamie Von Klumper. He's extremely bright. He's been with us 35, 37 years. So that's the other thing I should mention. We have people here. Our biggest problem is people don't want to ever leave. So <laughs> we have a lot of people who have been with us 30, 35 years. And it's hard to believe it because, you know, they're the old friends. So um, all that's worked. And it's given us consistency, performance. I mean, you say, you know, people work together for 35 years, they're producing great stuff. And we've had some 40 years, 43. I'm, we started the firm 43 and a half, or it was 44 years ago. I was in London last week at a, doing a book party. And um, I remember in 1985, we had a show at the Royal Institute of British Architects. And um, it was a beautiful show of the projects we were doing. We were nine years old at the time and an American firm coming to the UK and having a show at the RIBA, which is the Royal Institute of British Architects. And um, we had a great show, and uh, I saw the uh, brochure from that show this last week when I was in London. And the pro I couldn't believe the projects we had already done yeah. in those first seven years, including you know, 333 Wacker Drive, which is a very beautiful building, and many others. So. Uh, and the person interviewing me said he couldn't get over it. What we had done in seven or eight or nine years, the scale and beauty of these buildings. So we off to a great start and that's just continued fortunately. So that, that was, that growth is one of the things that I wanted to talk to you about. Um, where do you, because that growth was, was fascinating. I mean, you, you grew to a global firm within 15 years, uh, mm -hmm. which is unheard of. Right. Yeah. And typically it takes yeah. much longer than that. Obviously, that was sort of the vision to grow a large firm to, to potentially go international. Was the international right from the beginning or was it opportunity? No, it was um, in 1985. So we started in 76. So nine years later, we had that show at London I just mentioned. But at the same time, in 1985, uh, negative issues of concern, I should say, by economists, and others about the potential of the economy yep, coming yep. toward the end of, a, of the 1980s. 
And I had seen a little bit of a slowdown already, and I was concerned that we were going to have a hard time before the end of the year, before the end of, the, of that decade. And um, so I went to this conference of Urban Land Institute in San Francisco in 85. And this economist spoke to the audience. Remember, that audience was not just architects, developers, engineers, and financial people, architects, a whole group of people involved in the industry of real estate. And um, this economist said that if you're not global, like he was pointing to me, you're not global by 1990, half of you will be out of business. And I took him seriously because I could be beginning to see and having experienced that in 73, 76, I didn't want to go through that again. Mm -hmm. So I said to Shelley and Bill, I said, you guys, we've got to go global. We cannot just stay in the U.S. because the U.S. is going to have a tough market coming. And it did. By the 1990s, are very slow. Only one major building got built in this whole area of New York in 1990. Let's give you an example in the 90s. So um, we, uh, so I said, let's go. I have a good friend in London with Goldman Sachs. I said, I'm going to go over and see him and see what we can do. Plus, we had made some friends with Prince Charles, actually, um, as a result of the show in uh, in uh, London. Uh, he liked one of our buildings, 333 Wacker Drive. Yeah. Um, and, and anyway, we um, so I said, look, I'm going to go over and I'm going to talk to my friend at Goldman Sachs. And um, I did, and we got selected for a new building by Goldman. So fabulous. And then we somehow in Germany, in, in Frankfurt, got selected as the only foreign architect to the German architects to do a competition for a building which became the DZ Bank headquarters. And we won. <laughs> we were, I mean, it was a beautiful building. It's still the best building in Frankfurt, really gorgeous. And um, we had more fun. Bill and I probably had one of the best times together going to Frankfurt and having dinners and designing and working in London as well. So we got this great building. And all of a sudden, we got selected by where Travis did at that time to do a building at Canary Wharf. Now, they eventually sold to the Reichmans, but we did manage to keep a building. And uh, the first building we did, uh, we've done nine now in Canary Wharf, were the two lower buildings um, that turned out to be very successful. Here we are in 89, before the crash, or <laughs> doing three major projects, Goldman Sachs headquarters, building for Canary Wharf and this major building in Germany. And uh, that got us started. So and going then, international really saved the firm. It potentially saved the firm. Could have Because the economy really got bad. Yeah. Saved the firm and actually pushed it even further up. So but it was like a pole vaulting over, you know, a high, high mark. So in uh, Asia, so lucky break. We did a building in Chicago where a Japanese firm called Taisei their developers and so forth, as well as architects and so forth, and contractors, uh, where they were, had worked with us in Chicago with a Chicago developer. And we did the building, it was very successful. So the Taisei people said to me, would you come to Japan? We could try to do a project together in Tokyo. I said, fine, had never been. So I got my partner, young partner, Paul Katz, who unfortunately passed away, but brilliant fellow, to go with me. We went to Tokyo. And um, when we got there, unfortunately, the project they had decided not to pursue. They really got it crushed. They had a long trip. And, yeah, it's a long trip to say no. Long, however, they felt badly. So they said, well, we've recommended you for a project in Nagoya, Japan. So we went to an interview. And uh, the interview uh, was a little disappointing. 
because they wanted us to do the job, but the fee they offered was so ridiculously low. It was like $1 million for 5 million square feet of building. Uh, just doing the design. So I said, well, I'm, I, I think that's ridiculous. I'm going to leave. Now, I don't normally do that. I'm usually play the good guy. <laughs> but yeah, I was yeah. really offended. And, and uh, so I left Paul Katz, who was my young tiger. I said, you be the good guy and, and negotiate with him. And I'll, we'll talk every night. And he stayed for about a week or so. And they got it to $10 million, which is where we wanted to be. And, and they were a great client. And we designed a project and got it built. Five million square feet of office, hotel, residential, not residential, office, hotel, retail over railroad tracks. And the Shinkansen, the high-speed train, um, you cannot stop. I mean, you can't, every, it has to continue to run over time. Japanese are so proud of that. So we had to design it so those tr always were high-speed tracks available while they were building this building. So it was interesting. That launched us and gave us the qualifications for later in our career in Hudson Yards, where we built yeah, a whole yeah. bloody thing over tracks. So that was quite an experience. So anyway, Nagoya, all of a sudden, now we have this enormous job in Nagoya, Japan. And I said to Paul, you know what? Flying to Tokyo is very expensive. We might as well, for the same price, we can go to Hong Kong and uh, China. So we would do that. And all of a sudden, we would meet people there and land a job. And then in Japan, we got to meet Mr. Mori after a number of visits. and. Um, for, after six visits, we can meet his father. And we got selected for Rapungi, which is one of the great projects in Tokyo. So here, all of a sudden, in, again, 89, 90, we have three or four enormous projects in Asia, which became the stepping stone to get more work in, in all of Asia. So that's, that launched us global. And once we did that, today, 50% of our business is in China alone, 60% in Asia. You know, so it's an enormous part of the firm. And uh, you asked earlier, did I ever, I never thought about the firm being as big as it is. Neither, none of, none of us did. And we were happy with 100 people, 200, 700, which we now, I mean, might have to grow to more to do the work. We never thought about it. But once you open the floodgates to work globally, we've worked in over 40 different countries actually done projects, South America, the Mideast, Europe and Asia, and the US, Canada, Mexico, um, over 40, maybe 45. You know, once you start to have that and you do well, your projects are successful and you're liked by the people. Like in, in Brazil, we get more and more work because they love working with us. Fabulous team of people working there. So all of a sudden we became, you know, major, major global players and you know, a number of the top architects like Norman Foster and all regard us as great, as I regard him as great company, they regard us uh, because we do compete all the time across the globe. So it's been exciting. And I never dreamed I'd be traveling the world, but um, have. And uh, all of our young people are working across Europe or, or Asia. So, um, so today, if we would just look back for a minute, we have a major firm in London office that does design work is great. And they're about 150, 160. And uh, they work all through Europe. They work in uh, a little bit in Africa. They work in South America, uh, they work in, uh, in Asia, particularly China. And they work in Turkey and places like that. So, uh, and then our office is in Hong, Hong, in Hong Kong and in, in, in Shanghai. We're very busy with work in China. They pretty much oversee the work. They it's designed here or in London, but executed there and, uh, and construction monitor there, obviously. 
And then we have worked um, an office in Singapore, which is very large doing the new airport there, which would be the largest in the world. Our terminal alone is 14 million square feet. So it's a big, big project. Um, we have office in Korea, in Seoul, where we have done a lot of headquarters buildings. One of the most recent is called Lotte, L-O-T-T-E, which is a made chiclets. Initially, you know, it's hotel and restaurants and theaters, et cetera, and retail. And then we have an office swinging back to uh, Europe in Berlin as well, a small office. Anyway, I, we have eight, eight, nine offices in eight countries. We have a San Francisco office now. It's gotten very busy on the West Coast, extremely busy. And I'm spending a lot of time there now. So at the moment, the firm is really global. It is working across the globe in many places and in other countries where we're working, but now you don't have offices um, all through the Mideast and the, the, and the Far East. So uh, it's been, been beyond what we imagined. We never thought about it, never planned for that. But we were, up, we were prepared to grow as we were prepared to shrink, depending on the economy. Yeah. Fortunately, we have lucked out and been beneficiaries of the economy. So, so, so Gene, earlier, as you started talking about how you grew into this global firm, you used the term lucky break, that you had a lucky break that sort of led you to a, a project in, in, uh, in Asia. And all throughout the book, the, one of the themes that I, that I, I keep reading are, is about relationships, about your relationships, your skill with making friends and, and having relationships and how those relationships lead to projects and, and those dots connect. It's, this connection may not lead to a project, but that connection may lead to another connection that may lead to another connection that may lead to a project. And so very much of your early success uh, from what I've read has been a result of many of these connections, many of this, these relationship building exercises and, and be, just having the personality that you have and building this large network of, of people and, and friends. Um, so much of the success of KPF has to do with that. But how do you, as you grow into a national, uh, international firm with nine offices and 700 people and projects all throughout the world, how do you take that skill that you had as, or still have as a principal and pass that on to the next generation so those skills can continue to grow into the future? That's a good question, Mark, and, and it's a complicated one um, because it's, it's not something that happened overnight. I mean, yeah. but my personality uh, from the time I was a child has always been I like people and I make friends and I like to stay friends. So it wasn't phony or it wasn't, mm -hmm. it wasn't so predetermined that I was going to do all this to just to get jobs. No, but right, I, right. I believe that developing relationships would help one get work, but two, do it better. Mm -hmm. Find a new working together and they don't, aren't suspicious or afraid you're going to break the bank and all that. You know, we have confidence. So I, the way to do that is like, I still, I mean, today I call people, whether we're working with them or not, see how they're doing. How's their family? I make sure I've met their family and I ask her some event that's happening in their life. I comment on or I'll send them my book or a picture of something that we did or, you know, a Christmas card. I paint all the Christmas cards for the firm and send them. So I stay in touch. So either by call, by email or visit. But I stay regularly. Uh, 
And it, it, it takes a lot of time. I mean, a given day, I may send out 20 or 30 emails now just to say, hi, have you been? And have you seen this? Or what's your thought about the economy? Or just whatever it is. Or if we're doing a job, uh, by the way, things going well in your opinion, or do you have any thoughts you want to, you know, questions you have? Or I make it easy for them to get back to me. But I do that because I always believe that's a good idea. One, just I do it with my friends, stay in, you know, I keep my friends because I, I stay in touch with them. And when something is wrong, I, you know, sickness or something, I, I, stay, I do a painting or I stay after them. Um, it's a lot of work. And believe it or not, I can keep busy all day just staying in touch. Yeah. The client list is, you know, giant. I don't stay in touch with everyone, but I try to get my partners to do the same. And it's not phony. It's, I mean yeah. it. Yeah, yeah, and I and I don't mean to say that it was premeditated. No, no, I know you don't. I'm just saying you could make it phony because you just did it. Exactly right. Is there a process within the firm to teach other principals how to do that, or do you hire or or choose principals that already have that skill? I think it's a combination of that. Most of the people we select are good people, people, persons. They yep. they communicate well and they like people. I mean, they're people that would do similar to what I do, or, I mean, Jamie does the same thing, others are doing it. Um, they may not do it as much. I make a, <laughs> a real effort to kind of make, I make lists of people that I haven't talked to in a while that I want to say, and I just go through it one at a time. It's not, it's not, you got to be careful that it shouldn't look premeditated like, you know, I got to do this, but these are, you're sincere. Yeah, a sincere interest in, in the well-being of others. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think it's important. And look, if you're a small business person, there's no excuse why you can't do this. And if you're smart, you would do it. And you stay in touch. Yeah. So, yeah. But you've got to be meaningful. And even if you don't get the project, I don't just... A lot of people, when they lose, stop, forget it for the future. I don't do that. I write them back and say, gee, I, 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 congratulations, you picked a really great firm that do a great job. But, you know, we're sad that we weren't fortunate enough to be picked. Could you tell me what were some of the issues that maybe affected that decision that we could learn from? Now, if we win, I never ask them why. I mean, it would be silly. <laughs> I would discover they really didn't mean to pick you. Uh, but, <laughs> so I never, once they pick us, I don't ever ask. But if you lose, I think it's important to understand why. I mean, new businesses is a real skill, but it's a lot of work. And you need to have strategy. If you don't have strategy, you're not going to win. Right. So you, you wrote the book, The World by Design, the story of a global architecture firm. Why did you choose to write the book? You're a super busy man. You're doing lots of things. You're writing all of these letters, making these connections. Why take the time to, to write a book? Well, I was, uh, um, that's a very good question. Um, I mean, I always thought about it. It would be nice to do a book that traced our history and, and yeah. also success. But I also would talk about failures because... You kid yourself if you think you're going to be always winning. And it's important to let people know you do lose and why you lose, and you've got to be prepared for that. In fact, it's some of the worst losses and issues made us better. You know, we, we learned from it and did a better job. So um, I always, I don't want, that book was, has failures in it as well as successes, which is life, so you got to do that. Um, two, I was fortunate to have Cliff Pearson working with me, and while I... The stories are all mine. He helped me make them very readable. <laughs> and uh, and uh, that was important to have somebody I could work with because 
try to do other things as well. And uh, a number of my partners, uh, including Jamie, thought it would be a good idea to have a book. Uh, and finally, because people join a firm, they ought to know its history. Yeah. They know its stand because you know, they come in, I, I, I started by talking to the staff here in New York. I said, I did the statistics. There were 700 people. We've got eight, nine offices, eight countries. Uh, we've worked in 40, we have buildings in over 40 countries. But we didn't start that way. And you know, you ought to understand how we started, what we struggled with to get to this point. It wasn't all easy. And I went through, you know, the, the whole book talks about the tough times in the beginning and the risks you take. They have to understand that in order to fully appreciate what the firm has done. And I said, every one of you needs to know your history, like your history of your country. If you're going to work here and make a career here, you need to know how it all happened because it didn't happen overnight. <laughs> and this wasn't boom. And we're <laughs> here we are, you know, so anyway, um, it, it's, it's, it's working that way. Yeah. I, I, that's how I read it. When I read it, I, I, I for one, absolutely. I, I'm, I'm fascinated by the culture of KPF and I think having it as a book where someone coming into the firm can read the book and say, Oh, this is how this culture evolved can, can right. lend itself very well to helping that con culture continue to grow. Um, but then the, the, the history of KPF is so important, not only for the people who, who are coming into KPF now, but to lead KPF into the future. You can't really know where you're going to go unless you know where you've been, right? And so okay. having that history of KPF written in a book, it also sets the history straight so other people can't tell the history of KPF. You've told the history yeah. of KPF. Right. This is the definitive story of KPF and how it grew and the right. failures and the successes. Um, and actually some of the failures are the most fascinating pieces of the book when you it read is. the book. And, and a lot of things that I didn't know as a fan of the firm, didn't know existed and didn't know happened. Uh, really interesting to see how you went through some of those things and how those uh, struggles led to a stronger firm. Mm -hmm. No, that was all, no. Yeah, it was important to know that because the, sometimes the mistakes you make or the negatives that happen are key to your success. It's not always the good things. Yeah. Learning from some of the things you did wrong can make you much better in the future, but also be prepared for unexpected. Yeah. Uh, 40 plus years KPF has been around and growing and, and continues to grow. Um, as we wrap things up here, Gene, I, I want to ask you the one question that I ask everybody, but I sort of want to frame it in the way that um, knowing that the listeners of this show are mostly small firms, lots of sole practitioners, lots of fir firm owners of small firms that are, you know, 10 members or so or less. Um, some of those people who are listening right now want to create the next KPF, right? And so they want to create this global or, or a larger firm than they have now. Um, so what is one thing that a small firm architect can do today to build a better business for tomorrow? That's the question that I ask everybody. But from a small firm point of view, who wants to grow it into a larger firm, what would you suggest for them to focus on first? All right, so there are two good questions, right? Let me just answer the one before that first. Is that I don't think that being big necessarily makes you happier. Yeah, uh, no, I agree. And... Um, so, um, I mean, for me, it's worked because I have a, I enjoy the global aspect, but I could see being very happy living in a small town and doing a, this building, but, but making important contributions 
to the time. You know, architects, I want to just say this in general, then I'll answer your last question, is that architects really affect people's lives for years and years and years and many, many people. And uh, more so than a doctor, Absolutely. lawyer, whatever, I mean, dentist, <laughs> unless you're, you've cured some great disease problem, that is obviously a major impact. But what we do uh, affects the people inside the building, outside the building, for good or for bad. And if we do it well, we can make a lot of people's lives a lot better. So I don't think there's anything wrong with being a firm that 10, 15, 20 people that's doing some civic buildings in their town or towns in the area or a lovely hotel or uh, you know houses and make life better for those people who are enjoying those buildings. So I, I think, I don't think you have to be global. I mean, you can't, I happen to want to do that, but I could see the other side. Yeah. So I don't think everybody needs to grow their firm to a global scale. But if you choose to do that, right. it's a different strategy, obviously. Uh, and you're not going to work in a small town in Connecticut or Rhode Island or, 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 or North Carolina or South Carolina. You're going to need to be in the bigger cities where you can have that impact uh, that builds the reputation and allows you to start to expand. So um, we picked New York. And, uh, you know, New York gets a lot of attention. And our buildings are seen by lots of people. And automatically, you can start to spread the word. You know, somebody in San Francisco is visiting New York and sees your tower and says, that's really beautiful. Who designed that? They call you and all of a sudden you say, well, we'd like you to come to San Francisco and do our to London or so forth. So you then, then your strategy changes because now you really want to be global. And you start to say, how can I get to London or Paris or Tokyo or Shanghai or uh, Bangkok or whatever. So um, you make, the, but then it's a formal decision you're going to build for the future. You can't, it doesn't happen by chance, but you've got to really plan and you've got to make, you've got to make the effort and you've got to keep going to those towns. I used to go to London every month before we had a lot of work just to keep showing we would be there. <laughs> Otherwise, why would somebody pick you say, he's in New York and we're doing a building in London? What do I need this headache for? <laughs> so you decide if you want that or not. Yeah. Yeah. Well, the book, the book's name, the title is The World by Design, the story of a global architecture firm. It's available on Amazon right now. And we'll have links to that in the show notes. Uh, again, this is episode 300. So the link is entrearchitect.com slash episode 300. Uh, you can check out everything that KPF does at their website, kpf.com. Gene, I really, I am honored that you're here and you spoke with me today. I appreciate you taking the time out to, to tell us the story of KPF and, and where you came from as an architect. Uh, fascinating story. Um, and I appreciate you not only sharing it here, but in the book uh, for future generations to understand how a successful global firm can start and can grow into the future. So uh, fantastic conversation. Thank you very much for sharing your knowledge here at Entree Architect Podcast. Well, Mark, thank you, and it was a pleasure to see you again. And it brings back great memories of those days in Rhode Island. So. Looking forward to the next time. Okay, <laughs> look forward to it as well. So there you go, episode 300. I want to thank Gene Cohn and his team over at KPF for coordinating this time together. I so appreciate the opportunity to hear Gene's story and the story of KPF directly from the man who built the firm from three people to a global firm of more than 700 people.
From the day I heard Gene speak at Roger Williams, he has influenced my career and the decisions that I've made throughout the decades of being an architect. So Gene, thank you very much for your kindness, for your passion, for your dedication to the profession. Thank you. And this being episode 300, I also want to thank some other people. I want to thank a very important person who makes this podcast happen every week, week after week after week. Sarah Rowe. Sarah, thank you very much. Sarah Rowe is my producer for most of the past 300 episodes. Sarah has edited, published, and promoted every show so you, the Entree Architect community, can listen. So, Sarah, thank you very much for your dedication, your professionalism, and your friendship. I also want to thank our sponsors, Arcat and FreshBooks and Gusto. Without these dedicated sponsors and, and several others, we just could not do this. We just could not do the Entree Architect podcast. It just would not exist without our dedicated sponsors. So please, um, you hear me say this every week. You hear me mention the sponsors every week. Please make a point to click those links. Let them know that you're a member of the Entree Architect community and thank them for their support throughout the years. The, the sponsors are what allows us to do this week after week. So uh, please reach out to them and say thank you. Let them know that you are an architect from the Entree Architect community um, and that you appreciate them for supporting us. And lastly, I, I want to thank you. I want to thank you listening right now, whether this is your first listen or whether you've been listening with me since the uh, since my 12-12-12 project launched back in December 12, uh, 2012. You, the listeners, the Entree Architect community, have been the reason that I come back week after week. I truly believe that my purpose is to help others succeed, to help architects build better businesses. I believe that we, as small firm architects, impact the world like no one else. Uh, Gene even said it in the interview. Gene mentioned it as well, that we make a difference in the lives of those experiencing our architecture in the environments that we create. And when we have healthy, thriving businesses, we can be even better architects and have a greater impact in the world. And so I believe that my purpose here is to help you succeed and to become a better architect. So thank you for allowing me to be here each week. Uh, I hope that you are benefiting from the conversations that I have with the guests here at Entree Architect Podcast and the lessons that we share. So here is to another 300 episodes of Entree Architect Podcast. Thank you for listening. Love, learn, and share what you know. Have a great week. I've mentioned it to my family, but in terms of telling people like, oh yeah, we're doing this, I'm looking for projects. You got anything? Yeah. I'm, I'm not there yet because it scares the out of me. Dreaming of launching your own architecture firm? Well, we'll buckle up for a wild ride with Emerging, the podcast that shares what it's really like to start an architecture firm. Where do we begin? We don't even know what type of business to formalize as. Is it an LLC? Is it an LLP? Like how are taxes? I mean, the list is astronomical. Season one featured founders Jeffrey, Lexi, and Chris, owners of Level Studio Architecture, are your fearless guides on this unfiltered journey from napkin sketches to a thriving studio. One evening, 
stumbled into one last dive, we sat at the bar and pondered our postgraduate futures. Amidst the conversation, a napkin became the canvas for our aspirations, sketching plans and milestones, sealing our heartfelt commitment and shared dreams. In drawing down dreams on a napkin collectively, that <laughs> then, you know, in your head, you've rooted like, oh, I'm connected to these people, like long term. The process of starting an architecture practice brims with excitement and challenges, demanding meticulous planning, flawless execution, and unyielding resilience. I kind of hate the term because it's so overly used, but I think everybody knows imposter syndrome. And I think it's it's so real to this day. I, I, I don't know if it's with everybody, but with me, I'm always questioning like, us, can we do this? Are we ready to do this? Are we prepared? Can we do it? Did we just decide a name? <laughs> we did it, guys. Oh the one that God. came out of nowhere. Woo! It came out of nowhere. I liked it. I saw it. Ready to turn your aspirations into reality? Follow the link in the show notes to subscribe to Emerging and chart your own path to architectural success. Calling all small firm architects. It's time to tap into your full potential with Entree Architects Context and Clarity where inspiration meets innovation. Hey, it's Mark Arlapage, founder of Entree Architect, and I'm inviting you to join my two favorite co-hosts, Jeff Eccles and Katie Kangas, as they bring together authors, experts, and thought leaders for electric conversations with entrepreneur architects around the globe. It's not just a podcast, it's a community where dreams meet action. There is a simple equation there. And what for me, what that did, just doing that basic calculation was, it allowed me to compare what I had actually saved in my retirement accounts to what I thought a possible projected annual spend might be. Artists are temperamental, so beautiful design is gonna be a priority. When the job is done, we're gonna actually need to live in the house, not live with the person who designed it. <laughs> so for me, the, the artistic skill, the architectural skill is most important. And so I would say like, that would be 60% of it, if not more. Gain insights to build a successful practice. Subscribe, engage, and let's redefine your future together. Join the Context and Clarity community, where every conversation adds to your blueprint for success.